Steve, I wonder if we could just sing We Worship and Adore You one more time as we stand and get ready for the Word. And so let's stand together, everybody, and then we'll get right into it in Jesus' name. Amen. We worship, Lord, and we adore you. Thank you, Lord. worship and adore you. Bowing down. Yes, Lord, all the praises. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Now, let me pray for you. Father, I thank you that you've got a word for us tonight, a word of exhortation, edification, and comfort. And Lord, I pray, teach us your word and give us a greater understanding of Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, than we've ever had before. Now, will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to my heart. Change me tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. God bless you. I'm really excited about this series. It's going to be a good one. It is a good one, and we're probably just going to take it through next Wednesday and be done with it because, you know, you can't, that's all there is to it. But after that, I'm, I'm really praying about doing a series on the names of God because with every name that God named himself with, it opens us up to something that God is towards us. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, he's our provider. Jehovah Shalom, he's our peace. Jehovah Rophi, he's our healer. Uh, and so praying about going through that with you, and if we do, that's going to be great. But right now, let's look at this again tonight. We saw last time that Jesus uttered seven final sayings from the cross. How many of you know that anything Jesus says is worth knowing? Now here you've got Jesus hanging on the cross. He's dying. He's not talking about the weather. He's talking about what is most important to him, period. And so these seven sayings from the cross are coming out of the deepest recesses of the spirit and soul of Jesus Christ. Very important. Now, we saw that within each of those sayings were three life-changing truths. First, with every one of his sayings, you're going to find a part of his great work as our Savior. So with every one of these sayings, we're going to look at the work he did as our Savior, the work that it's speaking to. Second, you'll find an important relationship truth in every one of his sayings. You know, Jesus was a relator. He was not an island. He was a bridge. And he was totally about relationship and restoration of relationship. And so we're going to look at the relationship truth with every one of those sayings. And then third, a duty for every one of his disciples to obey. With every one of these sayings, there's something we can glean from it as a duty, as something that we need to obey in our own lives. Now, the first two utterances from last week uh, were, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
a prayer of forgiveness. And he was praying for us. And then the next statement, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And there is Jesus given a promise of eternal life. So there is his work as Savior, praying for us and giving us eternal life. Nobody's going to give you eternal life but Jesus Christ. Not anybody. That's it. He's the one and only. It is a narrow way. And it's the way that works. Now, this time we're going to look at two more cries from the cross. And the next one is very brief. Let's just read it together, can we? Woman, behold thy son. Then, of course, he turned to John and said, behold thy mother. But here's Jesus, and this just blows my mind. As I said last week, if I'm on a cross and I'm dying and I'm in agony, I'm not thinking about you. Are you thinking about me? Uh Uh-uh. You're dying in agony. But this is Jesus. And I think it speaks volumes about him. That dying on the cross, he thought about his mother. He thought about his disciple. And he cared enough about his mother to say, woman, there's your son. I'm not going to be able to be with you till the day that you die. So I'm taking care of you, mom, Mary. Jesus placed his mother, Mary, into the protective care of his beloved friend, the apostle John. So what does that mean Jesus is? Here's the third aspect of his work. He's a guardian, a protector, a shepherd. Can you say with me, Jesus is my protector. You know, I think one of the things we're going to find out when we get in heaven is how many times he saved us by the skin of our chinny chin chin and we never knew it. Today, he probably protected some of you. He protects all of us in some way every day, 24-7. He never sleeps. So Jesus here is seen as the guardian, the protector, the shepherd. He was making sure that his mother would be protected and provided for. So he turned to the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, who laid his head on Jesus' chest at the first communion service. And he said, John, there's your mother. Take care of her. Watch over her. You protect her. I'm giving you to her and her to you. You take care of my mama. Amen? Now, that flowed from character. To see what people need and then to meet that need is what Jesus does. As a priest, Jesus intercedes. As a king, he rules over heaven. But as a shepherd, he protects his people. No wonder David said, the Lord is my what, everybody? Shepherd. Now, I want you to be sure to notice that each of these aspects of the work of Jesus Christ is something that you and I desperately need, every one of them. Do you need mercy? How many of you need mercy for all the wrong things you've done? Anybody done anything wrong in this new year yet? You done anything wrong yet in the new year? How many of you have needed mercy at least once? How many needed it today? Amen. We need it all the time, don't we? All right? Then Jesus is praying that you will be forgiven. I'm so thankful that he's up there saying, well, there goes Wickwire again. Lord, forgive him. And he says this about you. There they go again. Lord, forgive him. He ever lives to make intercession for you. He's interceding, naming your name. Remember one time I read the testimony of a woman who, who died. 
She's one of these people that died and was able to come back. And, and this one, this one rang true because this one, what she said she experienced lined up with the word of God. She said, I died. And next thing I knew, I was entering into a room and I knew it was the throne room of God. And there was singing and there was glory. And she went into all these adjectives to describe what she had experienced. But she said, what stood out to me more than any single thing was the name of Jesus bouncing around in that room, having been prayed by the saints. It was the prayers of people echoing in the throne room of God. I don't think we realize that when we say the name of Jesus in faith, it goes straight into the throne room of God. And he hears those prayers. So there he is making intercession for us. And are you sure you're going to go to heaven when you die? Jesus has the power and he's the only one who does to give you eternal life. He's the only one. Are you vulnerable because of your age or your situation in life? Well, I got good news for you. So was Mary. And now Jesus will shelter you under his care just like he did her. If he cared enough to say, Mary, there's your son, and John, there's your mother, then he cares about you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this was his character. He took care of his own. David said proudly, the Lord is my shepherd. And he also boasted that God was his shield, the lifter up of his head, his light, his salvation, his strong tower from the enemy. And every one of these descriptions are protective in nature. God protects. Now, you may not feel like it all the time, but I guarantee you God protects. God protects. Now, the third relationship This third cry from the cross, woman, behold your son, speaks to a family relationship. Here's the relationship that it speaks to, family, family with Jesus Christ. Now, do you ever think about him that way? Let's look at this. Mary was Jesus' mother, and John was his spiritual brother. It was because of these close relationships that Jesus spoke to them from the cross, here is your son, here is your mother. Our Lord is a Lord of family. And we're all family here tonight. Can I just tell you that? We're family. We have been made family. You know, they say blood's thicker than water. We're all covered in the same blood. And we're all family because of, that's why I don't believe in, I'm not against, I'm not anti-denominational, but I'm inter-denominational. When somebody says, what kind of church do you have? I don't even say non-denominational because that sounds like anti I'm inter. Somebody this week said, well, what are you? And I said, well, we're an interdenomination. What does that mean? I said, I got everything in the world out there. You name the denomination, we got it. And I say, I don't want to call myself Baptist or Methodist or because then I might shut somebody out. I don't think Jesus would be denominational. Now, I'm not saying denominations are wrong. I'm just saying I don't think he would be in a denomination because we're all covered in the same blood. And I'll tell you what, you let some persecution hit this country and we'll forget forget all about the signs in the front. You let real 
persecution hit this nation, terrorist attack, where we're really in some danger, those signs will disappear. It'll be, brother, do you believe in Jesus? Yep, good enough for me. Give me a great big bear hug. Because I'll fellowship with you. I'm not going to split doctrinal hairs with you. If you're covered in the blood and you believe Jesus was God's Messiah, I'm with you. We're family. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus said that anybody who does the will of God was his mother and his brother. One day, Jesus' mother and brothers gathered outside a place where he was teaching, and they were asking to speak to him. And when he was told about this, he popped off, and it sounded kind of cold and cruel, but he wasn't being cruel. He was giving us the truth. I want you to read this with me, would you? Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Wow. So when we see Jesus caring for Mary and John, we should remember that he has the same love for us, the special love that somebody has for the members of his own family. That's the love that Jesus has for us. While Jesus is our Savior and Redeemer, he's also our brother, and we are his brothers and sisters in the family of God. Isn't that what he just told us? If you do the will of God, if you're a female, he says, sister. If you're a male, he says, brother, you're my brother. If you do the will of God. Hebrews puts it this way. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy. So the maker, the one who makes us holy, and those of us who have been made holy by the blood are of what, everybody? The same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them what? Brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. I can't tell you how strong this truth really is. You're my brother. You're my sister. We're family in God. We've been made that way. Can't get away from that. That's why it's weird. Uh, Not healthy, I should say, to get out of church. You get out of church and get out there and just isolate yourself. You separate yourself from not just fellowship with Jesus and fellowship in the Spirit, but from fellowship with family. Is it dysfunctional sometimes? Yep. Is it a perfect family? Nope. But is it family? Yes. It's family. Now, the third duty that we learn from this, woman, behold your son. What's the duty? It's to love our families the way Jesus loved his family. Jesus knew that he would not be able to care for his mother to the end of her days, so he took care of her. He had something infinitely more important to do for her, which was to die for her sins. But he also wanted to do his duty as a son and make sure that she had someone to protect her. So he gave Mary into the care of John, his loving disciple. If we love Jesus, we'll do our duty to love our families. Now, this has different implications for different people in different seasons of life, and I know it's not always easy. I know there's ornery people in your family. I know there's people who don't love God in your family. I know there's all kinds of dysfunction in your family. Listen, all the way back to Adam and Eve, there was dysfunction. For some of us, it means caring for parents and grandparents in their old age. 
For others, it means loving our wives and husbands in a way we hardly think we can ever love them again except by the grace of God. For others, this means honoring our parents by actually listening to what they're trying to teach us. For others, it may simply mean loving the family of God as our own brothers and sisters. But the principle is the same for all of us. Follow Jesus' example and love as he loved us and as he loved others. Amen? That's the duty. Now, let's look at the fourth work of Jesus Christ. Let's read this fourth cry from the cross. Ready? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The fourth word from the cross shows Jesus as a suffering servant. As somebody who endured excruciating torment in doing the work of our salvation. Jesus was practically dying of dehydration when he was hanging on the cross and said, I thirst, showing us his physical weakness as the suffering servant. The suffering servant. This was his work. He came to suffer and he came to die. Scripture is clear that he suffered that we might be healed and redeemed. King David, uncannily, you know, it's hard to believe when you read Psalms 22, it's hard to believe that it was written a millennia before Jesus. It's, it's just, it's a mind blower. If, if anything was going to convince me that the Bible was the word of God, it's something like this. This was a thousand years or so before Jesus. But look at how Jesus even quoted this psalm in the fourth cry from the cross. David wrote this in Psalms 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus took that right out of Psalms 22. And then David, in the first person, writes this way. Jesus, as it were, speaking out of David's mouth. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. And what are they saying to this man on the cross? He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him. If he delights in him. And of course, totally sarcastic. Then here goes Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord, speaking through David, anticipating the words of Jesus a thousand years before he showed up. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint, hanging on the cross. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. Look at this. They've pierced my hands and my feet. And in David's day, there was no such thing as crucifixion. There wasn't any such thing. This is the pure spirit of prophecy moving through King David. I can count all my bones, meaning they're all protruding. People stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And what happened? Those guards, those Roman guards, not knowing they were fulfilling prophecy, sat there at the foot of the cross and cast, cast uh, coins and lots for Jesus' garments. It's amazing. It's a mind blower. What do you do with that? If you don't believe in God, what do you do with that? You believe. 
You say, wow, must be something to that. Now, the Bible tells us why Jesus suffered this way. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became, what everyone? Poor, so that what? By his poverty he could make you. Now, is that talking about money? Oh, thank you for saying that, because it's not. It's talking about spiritual riches, peace with God, the joy of the Holy Ghost, salvation, redemption, forgiveness. Now, here's the fourth relationship that comes from that cry. The fourth word from the cross is a reminder that Jesus shares our common humanity. Now, if I was going to focus on any one of these points tonight, this is the one I want to bring home to you most. He's related to us as a fellow human being. He's not merely human because he also has a divine nature. Say with me, all God, all man. How can that be? Well, God did it. I don't know how it can be, but I do know that it is and was and always will be. All God, all man. He became one of us. He's not merely human because he also has a divine nature, but he's also a fellow human being. Jesus Christ is the God-man. But when he said, I thirst, he was thirsty because he had the same kind of body we have, a human body subject to weakness, a body that suffered before dying. The work of Jesus Christ was to suffer in our place so that we would not have to. Please, if you, you know, I don't know where you're going to be 10 years from now, but if you remember anything from this ministry, I want you to remember what I told you about Jesus. You know, I was reading this week. Let me just real quickly say this. I, I was reading 1 Thessalonians in my devotional time, chapter 2. I think it's chapter 2. And Paul's writing these Thessalonians, and he says to them, he says, I'm only concerned about one thing. I'm checking up on you. It's like a doctor putting a stethoscope to the heartbeat of this church. And he says, I want to know one thing about you. Not how's your money doing, not how are you dressing, not how educated are you, not what size home do you have now. He said, I want to know about one thing. I want to know about your faith. I want to know about the condition of your faith. I want to know how your faith is doing. He said, I'm so concerned about your faith that I'm sending Timothy to check up on you. And oh, am I praying he brings me a good report about your faith. I want to know if your faith is strong. I want to know if you've drifted any from what I told you about Jesus Christ. That's what I want to know. And that's it. And it's mentioned four times in one chapter. Four times. I want to know about your faith. I'm checking on your faith. I'm waiting to hear about your faith. And then he finally says, Timothy came back and gave me a great report about your faith. And now I live because your faith is strong. Well, what faith was he talking about? Their belief in Jesus Christ and who he was, what his mission was, God, man, all God, all man, all man, all God. 
He wanted to be sure their Christology is what we call it in seminary. Their Christology, their belief and understanding of who Jesus was, was intact. And you know what? That's all I care about, about you. Primarily, that's what I care most about. I want to know, how's your faith doing? Is it 98.7? Is it healthy? Or have you got a fever? I, this, listen, this is, what, this is what it all comes down to. So let's look at it for a minute. He came to suffer for us. He came to die for us. Jesus Christ was our friend and our brother and also our fellow human being. Now, Paul describes the mystery of what we would call the incredible incarnation. What's the incarnation? God wrapped himself in skin, was born of a virgin, and became one of us. God became one of us. That's the incarnation. God incarnate. God incarnated into one of us. It's a miracle. Though he was God, listen to what Jesus or Paul wrote. Though he was God, he, Jesus, did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a what, everyone? He was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he didn't stop there, but he further humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Now, I want to just call this the great condescension. When somebody does what God did, it, it, it's a condescension. He has condescended. It means he, he was up there and he stepped down here to you and me. He was way, way, way up there. He was in glory. And I want you to catch this now. The great condescension of Jesus who left his position to become a human being. Now, first, he gave up his divine privileges. I want you to understand this. He gave up his divine privileges. Paul the Apostle informs us that originally Jesus was with God inhabiting eternity. If you go into eternity, you go eternity behind you. As far back as you want to go, he was there. You go into eternity in front of you, as far ahead as you want to go, he's there. That's why he said, before Abraham was, I am. See, if you always were and always will be and always are, you am. Y'all get that? You am. You're not ever were because Jesus was but still is. So he am. And then he always will be. So if you go ahead 2,000 years, he still am. Because you're dealing with an eternal personality, not a finite personality. Okay? So, look what he says here. Paul the Apostle tells us, Jesus was inhabiting eternity. Yet he chose not to cling to this position. Wow, this was the first step down. It says literally, it was not a, his eternal state was not a thing to be grasped or clung to. So here he got the first step in condescension. Now here comes the second step. He emptied himself. The word emptied presupposes that there was a former fullness. You can't empty what wasn't full. 
He was full in glory. Yet he poured it out. Paul writes, made himself of no reputation. The Greek language, literally, he, he poured out the fullness that was his. When he condescended. Okay? Now, this was a totally voluntary act. Nobody made him do it. It was voluntary. He did not give up his position in the Godhead. That's not what we're saying. He never lost his position in the Godhead. But he gave up its manifestation. He gave up its glory. He gave it up. He stepped out of glory, stepped down to earth, stepped into a virgin's womb, was born a human being. Step down, step down, step down. He used his equality with God as an opportunity for self-abasement, not self-seeking. There's not a self-seeking bone in Jesus' body. Not one. Then he took the form of a servant, stepped down again. He went from being in the form of God to taking the form of a slave. Doulos, the Greek word slave. If you're reading in the New Testament about a slave... The same word is used for that slave as is used for Jesus here. He took upon him the form of a slave. He came to do his father's will, submitting his own will in all things to the father. He said, not as I will or not my will, but your will be done. Not mine. I came to, not to do my will. I came to do your will. I totally unselfishly live for God. Next, Jesus was made in the likeness of men. He was God, but he literally did become a man. The Greek word morphe, morphe, is used. We, what do we get from that? What do you think? What word? Metamorphosis. When you morph into something, you, you change. You're morphing from one thing to another. He was God, but he morphed into. He became a human being, really did. It lets us know that he didn't just put on skin like a man, but he took on a human nature without taking on Adam's sin. So what does it say about him? He was tempted in every point like we are, yet he never sinned. But every way that you have ever been tempted, Jesus was tempted. He was a human being. Finally, Jesus, the God-man, condescended one more time. In the supreme act of self-humiliation by his voluntary submission to death. And this is just, this is just, you know, if you consider this, it's just a mind blower. Because here's God. There he is, inhabiting eternity. What does it say? The inhabitants of the world are like grasshoppers to God. And yet he says, I love you and me so much. I'm going to step out of this. I'm going to pour myself out. I'm going to leave what I had, a mansion on Sweet Street, God, the whole universe at my beck and call. And I'm going to step down. I'm going to become a human, but I'm not going to stop there because I love you. I'm going to take on the form of a servant and only do what he tells me to do. And then when it comes time for the cross, I'm going to say, not my will, but his be done. And then I'm going to go to that cross. And I'm going to allow, the creator is going to allow the created to hammer him to a cross. My created creatures, I'm going to let them kill me. 
and I'm going to spill my blood. They're going to beat me beyond recognition. He says, I read this tonight. He said, I could call on legions of angels and they would come and whisk me out of here like that, but I didn't come to obey my own will. I came to obey his. So I'm going all the way to the cross. So he stepped down, and then he stepped down again, and then he stepped down again, and then he did the ultimate step-down condescension when he allowed them to kill him. He took away, he bore the sin of the entire world. Jesus suffered death for the sin which himself sinless he promised to bear. See, it says the wages of sin is death. He had to die because sin requires death because sin kills. And this too was utterly voluntary. Look what Jesus said. Therefore, my father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it again. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. Nobody's making me do this. I'm laying it down voluntarily. Okay? And it wasn't any ordinary death, y'all. Of all forms of death, the most torturing and the most full of shame, hanging there naked, a death reserved by the Romans for slaves, a death that was accursed in the eyes of the Jews. He went to that cross. You know, can we just stop a minute and thank the Lord that he went to the cross for us before we finish tonight? Lord, we just thank you that you went to the cross for us, Lord. You voluntarily submitted your body to the smiter's whip. You being God took on the form of a human being and then you took on the form of a slave and then you went all the way to the cross and you gave your blood and your life for us. And we praise you for it, Lord, right now. Can we just lift our hands to him and say, Lord, thank you for the blood of Jesus shed for my sins, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Well, I sense the anointing of God here on this. I'm so thankful for Jesus. Mm-mm-mm. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, let's finish this up. Now, the fourth duty and the last one we're going to talk about tonight is to love the Word of God. Stop thinking a minute. A minute. That's really what Jesus was doing when he was, said that he was thirsty. And also when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was pulling straight from Psalms 22. John explicitly tells us that Jesus said this to fulfill all Scripture. So John tells us his motive for quoting the Psalms to fulfill all Scripture. So Jesus loved the Word of God. As already mentioned, David had promised a thousand years earlier that the Christ would die thirsty and that he would be given sour wine to drink. That's in Psalm 69, 21. Jesus knew the Scripture had to come true, that everything promised in the Word of God must come to pass. So in his dying moments, he said that he was thirsty thereby loving and honoring the Word of God. Our duty, therefore, is to love the Word as Jesus loved it, learning its doctrines, trusting its promises, obeying its commandments, and believing its gospel of saving grace. 
Amen? I love this word. I love this word. Do you? I mean, he's made me love it. He's caused me to love it. Let's stand together. And we're thankful tonight for these two sayings from the cross. Woman, behold your son, and I thirst. Lord, thank you for suffering for us, and thank you that we see in your actions family love, family care, love for one another, even in times of great suffering. We thank you, Lord, for being our model, and thank you for being our Messiah. Thank you that you suffered for us and died for us and rose from the dead so that we could be alive tonight in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's just one more time. Go ahead and worship the Lord a minute and thank Him for what He's done. He's a good God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Praise your mighty name. Praise your mighty name. Praise your mighty name, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Can we give him a hand of praise tonight? Glory to God. Glory.